Second Peter chapter two, beginning in verse 10, where Peter picks up. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are Spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. The FBI is famous for its criminal profiling procedures and the way the FBI profiles serve as a powerful tool to recognize patterns that criminals employ When they commit crimes, there are also inherent weaknesses in the profile procedure. Every crime scene tells the investigator something about the crime and about the criminal cases and crime scenes are often organized and sometimes they are disorganized. Crime scenes leave clues, but even the absence of clues becomes in and of itself a clue. And so Peter offers a profile of the character and the conduct of false teachers. Words are their weapons. They target men's souls by appealing to carnal nature and fallen nature and lower nature. They use spiritual emptiness and ignorance in order to target their appeal. And like the serial killer, the false teacher may not fit every point in a profile. But they're going to have some points, typically. In this chapter, Peter will give a sweeping overview of the false teacher and their false teaching. He addresses their identity, their iniquity. And then he draws illustrations again of their judgment from the Old Testament. They're filled with lust, it says in verse 10. They are licentious, it says in verse 13. They are lost, it says in verse 14. Peter exposes their claims in verses 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. And he's going to later expose their converts in verse 20 and 21 and 22. And Peter will draw on many metaphors to describe their character. Brute beasts, verse 12. Stains upon Christianity, verse 13. Unstable, storm-driven clouds, verse 17. Dogs returning to their own vomit, verse 22. Hogs wallowing in the mud, verse 22. Peter's profile of the false teacher includes uh, the people who live Primarily for physical pleasure. 
They live to satisfy themselves and gratify their own desires. Peter says the false teacher will eventually ignore God's law and human government, and they will have very little regard for anything that you and I might call sacred. The FBI notes that the typical serial killer are white males in their 20s or 30s who target strangers near their home or place of employment. According to Eric Hickey, who has gathered the most extensive database on the demography of serial murder, states that 88 percent are Caucasian. The average age in which they claim their first victim is 28 years old. Quote, in terms of victimology or victim selection, 62 percent of the killers target strangers exclusively. Another 22 percent kill at least one stranger. Finally, 71 percent of the killers operate in a specific location or area. They rarely travel wide distances in order to commit their crimes. According to the FBI, in order to be classified as a serial killer, a person has to complete three separate murders or killings. And usually, according to the FBI, these are spaced by what experts call a cooling off period. And that cooling off period may be days. It may be years. But one thing that very few definitions include is that the killer is typically known for a particular method in which they kill their victim. For instance, Wayne Gacy had the trademark of gagging his victims with their own underwear so that they would die in their own vomit. It's disgusting, isn't it? It's supposed to be. You see, serial killers may have the advantage of killing the body. But false teachers do something far worse. They participate in the destruction of a soul. False teachers aren't simply misguided. They're not simply misled. They're not simply misunderstood. They are disgusting. And part of the challenge that I have is to create a mechanism where in your brain you are not just simply curious about the false teacher, but that you're disgusted. By the false teacher. I think that there's a certain healthy fear. For many women, when they see a snake, they recoil in horror. I think that there are God-given mechanisms that sometimes you are supposed to recoil in God-given horror. The false teacher consume their victims, seduce their victims, and destabilize their victims in verse 13, 14 and 18. Now, remember, there are typical serial killers and there are typical false teachers. Not all serial killers are white males in their 20s or 30s. Some don't fit the profile. A growing population of black serial killers and female serial killers are coming to the attention of law enforcement officials. All seem to share evidence of abuse in childhood, bedwetting past the age of 10, abuse to animals, a history of arson. But I need to tell you something else. If you were abused as a child, if bedwetting extended past the age of 10, if you abused animals, if you have a history of arson, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to become a serial killer. This is why the FBI uses the profile as an aid to investigation, but still looks at the evidence and the facts. Not all false teachers will at first glance in their character and conduct accommodate all of the characteristics, but make no mistake about it. The false teacher will deny Jesus, at least the Jesus of the New Testament. The false teacher will depart from biblical truth. The false teacher will often be winsome and attractive, charismatic and intelligent, sophisticated, and sometimes they're able to manage to mask their lust and their lawlessness just long enough to seduce their victim. 
And so Peter picks up the profile in verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh, he writes, in the lust of uncleanness, despise authority. They are presumptuous and self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Just for purposes of quick review, remember that the whole book of First Peter and Second Peter gives us a compilation of things that we need to remember. Number one, false prophets told people the things they wanted to hear rather than denounce their sin and call them to repentance. Number two, false prophets used their position as a means of personal gain more than as a means of ministry. Number three, false prophets live lifestyles marked by licentiousness, vice and sin rather than holiness. Number four, false prophets steal ideas from one another to stay up to date with the latest false prophet fad. Rather than sincerely seek and declare the word of the Lord. In Jeremiah 23, 20, it says, I am against the prophets who steal from one another words that supposedly come from me, unquote. Number five, false prophets would 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 rather manipulate and control their followers than serve them. And number six, false prophets drove people away from God rather than drove them Closer to God. Peter includes in the profile false teachers walk according to the flesh. Now, remember what the flesh is. It isn't just simply the bones and muscle and tissue that hang from your body. This is everything that you are apart from Christ. This is desire. This is reason. This is everything, not just the good things about you and not just the bad things about you. It's everything that you are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the flesh is everything that we are and apart from Christ. And so part of the implication of the false teacher is that they resist instruction from the Holy Spirit. They resist instruction from the word of God. They resist instruction from men and women of God. And so the false teacher will use good qualities and real talents and real training. But won't use them in a God honoring kind of a way. And so here Peter draws attention to the fact, especially those who walk according to The flesh, the idea being those who satisfy themselves, who see Christianity and Christ as a way to make a living, to gain recognition, to have a following, to embrace honor. They gain worldly freedom. They do away with godly restraints. They completely jettison the New Testament demands of holy living, honoring and pleasing the Lord Jesus. False teachers focus On satisfying themselves. And make no mistake about it. When your focus becomes satisfying yourself. You must of necessity begin to resist. Reject and rebel against those things that you and I would call law. Whether the law comes from God. Whether the law comes from human government. Whether the law comes from mom or dad. When someone lays down the law and you want to defy the law, it's typically because you want to do something else. False teachers despise authority. That's what it says. And despise authority. Not just simply resist authority. Not just simply reject authority, they begin to despise it. And again, I want you to understand something. The apostle isn't telling us about somebody who's well-meaning and misguided. I suspect the apostle is dealing with human beings who have known the truth, who have turned their backs on the truth. They've heard the gospel message. They've heard about grace. They've heard about mercy. They've heard about Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. They've heard about his resurrection from the dead. They have exalted opinions of themselves. 
They have little respect or no respect for those whom God has placed in legitimate positions of authority. And so the false teacher will claim the right to do what he or she wants, to do what he or she pleases. Typically, out of their mouth will come words like, you can't tell me what to do. I have the right to do whatever I want to do. You can't tell me what to do. And in a way, they're right. I don't know if you've ever tried to share Christ with someone and someone said, mind your own business. In a very real way, they're correct. They're free. They're free to dishonor God. They're free to disobey God. They're free to reject God. They're free to reject the truth. They are free to go to hell unhindered by anyone or anything. They have that freedom. But do yourself a favor and do them a favor. Make sure that you plead with them. Make sure that you tell them about God's love. Make sure that you tell them about the the truth about Jesus. The false teacher doesn't want anyone or anything to limit, restrict, restrain, or control them. And clearly, God is the source of all legitimate authority. And that's why the Bible over and over and over again repeats the admonition that when you reject authority and legitimate authority, you are in effect rejecting God. Does God have authority in your life? Does the Bible exercise some kind of meaningful authority in your life? The Bible says That God has entrusted to Jesus Christ all power and authority. Paul will later write, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Some will do it reluctantly. Some will do it freely. False teachers, it says, are presumptuous. What does that mean? The word presumptuous is very interesting. It only appears here in the Greek New Testament. Tol, me, tease. It comes from a a verb, tolmeo. The word in the original language meant to take a dare, to be bold. As a matter of fact, I think that that's the way the New American Standard translates this. The false teacher is bold or the false teacher is daring. In what way is the false teacher bold or daring? They're bold and daring in the sense that whatever prohibitions or restrictions appear, they're willing to go beyond those prohibitions and restrictions and shock and aggravate. False teachers are self-willed. Why? Because they are not other-focused and they're certainly not getting their instructions from the Lord. False teachers aren't afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. What does that mean? I suspect that Peter has in mind several things. I think he's talking about physical authorities to rulers and leaders. I think he's talking about human beings in at least one sense. That is the authority that's been given in the church. But I suspect that Peter has something way bigger in mind. I think that he's speaking of spiritual beings or spirit beings. And you'll remember that in the world of the Jew of the first century, there were two large divisions. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They believed in supernatural beings like angels and demons. And you'll remember that the Sadducees didn't question you, Bible scholars. Did Peter believe that angels were real? Yeah, the answer is yes. He remember in the book of Acts, he sprung from a prison by an angel. He's at death's door and supernaturally the gate is open. The shackles come off and a supernatural luminescent being guides him out of a prison door. Hey, by the way, if you've ever sprung from jail by an angel, do you think that if for whatever reason you didn't believe in angels before that you would then? As a matter of fact. False teachers typically will go to one of two extremes. They won't believe in the supernatural and they won't believe in angels or they'll believe everything supernatural. They'll believe every demon and every angel. And that's part of the challenge. 
You see, if the false teacher truly believed in God and truly believed that God held him or her responsible for every idle word, then God would that God took note of everything that was said, that God held them accountable for everything. The false teacher would be more careful and cautious in his or her speech. Do you remember in the book Gospel of John where Jesus says, My words are spirit and they are life. That doesn't mean they're not real words or they're not articulate words or they're not understandable words or they're not human words. But clearly. Conversation comes from somewhere. The false teacher Doubts the Holy Spirit and then denies the Holy Spirit. It may mean that they don't believe in angels or demons. It may mean that they believe in every demon and every angel. But here is the point. The point becomes the false teacher denies or distorts the revelation that's been given in God's word. In verse 11, it says, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. I think verse 11 gives us insight into verse 10. Number one, there are angels. Number two, that there's a hierarchy of angels. There are angels who are greater and there are angels that are lesser. The angels who are greater in power and might than the false teachers know better than to bring a reviling accusation against other spirit beings. That's what he's saying. In other words, angels are careful of what they say. Sometimes that manifests itself in hierarchies in our own culture. If you've ever been in the military, there's two kinds of speech. Speech that's necessary and speech that isn't necessarily necessary. Sometimes a a subordinate will say to a superior, permission to speak freely, sir. Why? Because you don't always want to say what you mean or mean what you say, but you also don't want to get in trouble for what you say and what you mean. As a matter of fact, Jude speaks of this in Jude 9, where he mentions that Michael, the archangel, in disputing over the devil, over the body of Moses, dared not bring against him, that is Satan, a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. It would seem that in this hierarchy of the spirit world, which Paul refers to as principalities and powers, there is speech that takes place. In Ephesians 6:12 Paul writes, "For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places." And Peter is pointing out that the false teacher may have absolute confidence in the spirit world. They may have less than absolute confidence in the spirit world, but they're they're willing to say and do things that are completely inappropriate. You know, I encourage or I should rather say discourage people from talking to the devil. I don't see warrant in the Bible for that where people go, I bind you, devil. Every time I've seen people say, I bind you, devil, the devil always has a way of escaping and they have to rebind and rebind and rebind. The Bible seems to indicate That our best way of dealing with supernatural circumstances, the Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee. In Colossians 1.16, it says, for by him, that is Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So apparently in the hierarchy of all beings, spirit or not, they have their authority and existence from Jesus. And so Peter says in verse 12, but these, that is the false teachers, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they don't understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Peter describes the false teachers like natural. 
The word natural is an adjective. Physikos. It appears only here and in Romans chapter one, verse 26 from physis in the Greek, where we get the word physical and nature. One Bible scholar translates this. They are born creatures of instinct. And I think that that's right. Brute is the adjective alagos. Now, remember, logos means thought, idea, word. Logos in the ancient world was a word that was used to describe the express communication of a thinking person. Ah, which is it's called the alpha privative, makes it negative. So ah, logos would mean not reasonable, unreasoning, not open to reason. And so he draws The illustration that false teachers like animals do not think through the consequences of their actions. And he says the consequences, whether they like it or not, will utterly perish. In their own corruption, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. That's an awful thing. They speak evil of the things that they don't understand. The false teacher is guilty of insulting language, but make no mistake about it. Insulting language will eventually lead to insulting behavior. Remember, the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But out of the abundance of the heart, as the mouth speaks, it will begin to inform how you act and what you do. Many false teachers reject the notion that the scriptures teach a God who is personal and righteous and just. And they're quick to point out God's love because they're quick to abandon biblical notions of justice and judgment and wrath. The false teacher who speaks of generations past will often do it disparagingly. I don't know how many times I hear people put down Jonathan Edwards and the Puritan saints. Yeah, these people were so backward. You know, they put people in stocks and they burned people at the stake. But if you have ever read the Puritan writers, you're going to understand something that these were men and women who loved the Lord, that they had a compassion and a concern for one another, that they were willing to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. My grandparents generation used to say the man who bows down to nothing can never bear the burden of himself that was my granny's way of saying you reject God you reject Christ you reject the Bible you reject the government you reject science you reject this you reject that you reject whatever it is that you reject pretty soon the only thing that has authority that has value that has meaning that has authoritative substance in your life becomes your own will and your own desire But I got to tell you something. When the only thing in your life is what you want and what you need, you will begin to bow under the enormous pressure of your fears and your phobias and your limitations. There is one fear that quiets every other fear. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And of knowledge and make no mistake about it. If the one seminal substantive thing that you regard is the person of God, the attributes of God, the character of God, the revelation of God, the knowledge of God, that he is just and that he is holy and that he is good and that he will hold all people accountable for all that they say and do. It will begin to inform not only your thinking, but your behaving. No wonder Peter says false teachers have no idea what they're talking about. In verse 13, it says, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. 
And note what it says. Their payment, verse 13, they receive the wages of unrighteousness. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. The wages of unrighteousness, make no mistake about it, you will be paid in full as those who counted pleasure. To carouse in the daytime. Carouse is an old-fashioned word that we very rarely use. In our culture and society, when we think of carouse, we think goofing off. You're carousing around. You're goofing off. But in the ancient world, carouse did not meant goofing off. Carouse meant satisfying your lusts and your desires. You see, most people have at least a partially bad rap of the Roman Empire and the Roman culture. You may have seen Rome represented in all of its lewdness and lasciviousness and wickedness. But you've got an incomplete picture. There were very many self-respecting Romans who obeyed the law and followed cultural mandates within their family. There was a sense of dignity and honor and propriety and their, the lewdness of desire and deception were reserved for the night. In other words, good and decent Roman citizens would wait for the sun to go down before they began to indulge in their deceptions and desires. In the ancient world, it was like Daytime TV and cable TV. In daytime TV, you had to be aware that kids might be watching. But on cable TV at night, when the lights go out and the kids go to sleep, then every weird and wicked thing is allowed. That's what he's talking about. That the false teachers do not care whether it's day. They do not care whether it's night. False teachers are willing to indulge themselves and do it openly and do it plainly. In other words, what he is saying is that the false teacher is unwilling to be restricted by normal measures, prohibitions or restraints. And they're willing to do openly what people would only in the past do secretly. And so the false teacher rejects the lordship of Jesus, the strict demands of God's word. The false teacher feels no pressure to separate himself or herself from the world or its pleasures or its possessions. And so for the false teacher, the idea of separation, sacrifice, self-denial, they're cleverly explained away. The false teacher has little or no sense of personal shame. Has anyone ever said to you, aren't you ashamed of yourself? What are you trying to do? Shame me? Uh, Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Because you may not know this, but shame isn't a wicked thing. It's a God-given mechanism to try and restrain your behavior. But the false teacher celebrates their freedom. But it's always at the expense of God's holiness and righteousness. Some scholars believe that the feast here refers to the love feast or the agape feast. In the early church, people would gather. They would come from all around and they would love one another and they would minister to one another and they would pray for one another and they would support one another and they would encourage each other in their mutual faith. They would talk about the sacrifice of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the reconciliation and the powerful ability of people to change from the inside out and they would hold a feast. And as they would celebrate God's love and as they would celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his glorious resurrection, the false teacher would come into the midst, pretend to enjoy fellowship, pretend to enjoy friendship. But they were, in fact, using Christian fellowship as an opportunity to prey on unsuspecting Christians. Well, that couldn't happen now, could it? I mean, no one would darken the door of our church and and come and sit right down next to you and pretend to be something that they aren't. And for the purposes of soliciting some other agenda in your life. Let me be very clear here. The false teacher doesn't desire to draw you close to the Lord and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The false teacher wants to draw you to himself. To herself. 
And so in verse 14, and it's a big verse, listen carefully, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and they are accursed children. In one single verse, in one single verse, Peter describes the false teachers corruption, addiction, seduction, sophistication, damnation. How do you squeeze all of that in one sentence? I'm so reluctant to tell you what it actually says because it's so sickening and disheartening. When Peter writes, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, he describes the predisposition and the character of the false teacher that when he meets you, he sizes you up and evaluates you in terms of how he can consume you and have you. Every person becomes a product. What it literally means Is that he can't look at you without wanting to have sex with you. That's the point. Clearly, the Bible describes actual sexual immorality. It uses the sexually immoral behavior as a metaphor for a lack of loyalty, a lack of fidelity, a lack of integrity to spiritual commitments, including our commitment to the lordship of Jesus and the service of Jesus. But the false teachers love and loyalty isn't to Jesus, but it's to satisfying themselves. And even Peter says. And they cannot stop. The false teacher may, under extraordinary circumstances, say to you, I, I just can't stop. So here the idea is that the false teacher is willing to use the church. The false teacher is willing to use fellowship. The false teacher is using to, willing to use the church and fellowship as an opportunity to To consume unsuspecting victims. And look what he says. False teachers entice unstable souls. The word entice, deladzo. It's translated allure in verse 18. In James 1.14, it can be translated seduction or seduce. The false teacher reaches out to others. But it's not with the love of God and it's not with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The false teacher does not reach out. With an explanation that there's a loving savior who's willing to save you from your sin by grace alone, through faith alone and reconcile you to a wonderful father who's in heaven. The false teacher is interested in promoting their own personal opinions and their own bizarre Ideas. And just like the serial killer, the serial killer will pick his or her victim with the expectation that the victim is going to satisfy some wicked need. But make no mistake about it. The serial killer wants to get away with his crime. He wants to get away with his crime. And the false teacher wants to get away with his crime. The false teacher wants to humiliate you and consume you and use you. All the while behind a veneer and a mask of respectability. The word unstable. Ah, sterictos. Steriktos was a word that was used to fix a stake firmly in the in the ground. It meant permanence, a lack of movement. A steriktos meant unfirm, not firm, not established, unstable, and therefore unsettled. And so the false teacher's victims are the people who are ignorant or immature or unprepared. 
the false teacher chooses as his victim. Someone who is uncertain. Unstable. Filled with doubt. And look, the false teachers have a heart trained, exercised in covetous practices. Remember, covetous means simply wanting more and more of what you already have enough. They want more popularity. They want more attention. They want more recognition. They want more following. They want a larger ministry, more success, more money, more raise, more gift, more children to come into their fold. They're like hell. And the grave. They're never satisfied. They want just a little bit more. The false teacher is corrupt, addicted, seductive, sophisticated. And look what it says. They are accursed children. You may not know what that means. The false teacher. The false teacher isn't operating under the blessing of God. The false teacher is operating under the curse of God. The false teacher will say, I am working under the great ministry and blessing, authority and gracious provision of a God. But that's not true. They're a curse. That means they're living under God's curse. In verse 15, look what it says. They have forsaken the right way. Look again in verse 15 and read it for yourself and read it over and over and over again until you actually understand it. They have forsaken the right way. Question. Does Peter believe there is a right way? They have forsaken the right way. Peter believes there is a right way. Peter believes that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by Jesus. Peter believes when Jesus said, I came down from heaven. Jesus believes that when Jesus said what Jesus said to the religious leaders, unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you're going to perish in your sins. They have forsaken the right way. And that means that they've gone the wrong way. Instead of embracing salvation, they embrace damnation. Instead of embracing life, they embrace death. And their solicitation is to take you with them. No wonder in verse 16, Peter writes, But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. And then he says in verse 17. In verse 15, they have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. I always when I see that, I think of Eeyore. Remember Christopher Robin and the donkey? I don't think it's any mistake that his donkey and Balaam have something in common. By the way, do false prophets ever become recipients of miracles? If Balaam is any indication, was Balaam the recipient of a miracle? Peter writes, they've forsaken the right way. They've embraced the wrong way. And he gives the illustration found in Numbers chapter 22. The king of Moab was a man named Balak, and he feared the people of Israel. And it tells the story of how he hires Balaam, a psychic, a prognosticator, to curse the children of Israel. Many years ago, when I was a kid, Don Francisco codified it in a song. Now, Balaam was a prophet about the time that Moses was coming through. And every now and then God would speak to him and tell him what to say and do. He had a reputation in all those parts of being on the line of power. And when Moab's king heard Moses was coming, he called him in his needy hour. He said, Balaam, come and curse these Israelites. If you do, I believe I could beat them in a fight. But when Balaam asked the Lord, the Lord said, Balaam, don't you know? Israel is blessed by me. Don't you go mess up my show. But Balaam's head was turned by the money he could earn. So he saddled up his donkey anyway. Balaam and his servants hurried off 
for the king of Moab's castle. But they hadn't gone very far down the road when the whole trip became a hassle because the donkey ran off across the field. Then she nearly broke Balaam's ankle. But when she lay right down and wouldn't get up, Balaam got a little more than rankled. For the third time, Balaam beat her with a cane. But that donkey just refused to move again. It was that thing that happened next, though, that made Balaam's knees get weak. Well, that donkey still would not get up, but she began to speak. She said, Balaam, you're to blame. The way you beat me is a shame because all I've done is tried to save your life. You may not know this. Peter's trying to save their life. Peter's trying to save your life. When he uses the illustration of Balaam, he uses an illustration of a person who's willing to have money rather than the favor of God and the will of God and the plan of God and the purposes of God. I want you to understand it in its most crass and simple terms. Balaam was willing to see a nation destroyed. So that he could have what he wanted. A serial killer. Is willing to see a life destroyed. And a family destroyed. In order to satisfy themselves. The false prophet. Is willing to see. Your soul. Condemned. And destroyed for the simple purpose of using you to satisfy the circumstances of their life. No wonder he says they're empty and unstable. Look at verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He gives two illustrations to describe the false teachers. They are like wells that offer no water to weary pilgrims who cross the dry and a barren desert. But when you finally get to the well, the well is empty. They're like storm clouds that hold out hope of rain for the farmer. The, the, the cloud blows in. It offers rain and a hot wind comes and blows it completely out of the way. The false prophet will sink to the lowest depths. A well will raise to the highest heavens. A cloud. But as they sink to the lowest depths and as they raise to the highest clouds, you know what you get when you go down there? Nothing. Do you know what you get when you go up there? Nothing. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In the Old Testament, they dug wells in the middle of the desert. They would take an instrument and they would dig out the sand and they would go to the water line so that water would well up so that people could refresh themselves in, a, in the middle of a dry and a thirsty place. But the false prophet has nothing to offer. Because their wells are empty. And their clouds are empty. This is an empty message. It's an empty gospel. It's an empty salvation. And so in verse 18 he says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure. Same word. Through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. The false teacher is bright, articulate, able to turn a phrase, use cliche, interesting stories, emotion and sentiment. But in the end, what they have to say is empty. Why? Because what people really need is forgiveness of sin and a savior. People need hope. They need love and forgiveness and redemption and grace and mercy. They need to know that God loves them and is willing to forgive them, to give them grace and mercy, that heaven is a place that they can go for real and heaven and hell is a place that they can avoid. 
So why do they speak emptiness? Because the false teacher may use a word like Jesus Christ. They may use a word like grace. They may use a word like faith. But it's not the Jesus in the New Testament. And it's not the grace in the New Testament. And it's not the faith in the New Testament. It's not the faith that is embraced by Peter and James and John and the apostles. The false teacher's speech consists of their own failed ideas. Their own wrong opinions. Their their foolish speculations. And so it is a false hope that doesn't provide a biblical solution to human pain and human suffering and human sin. And so the teacher leaves the hearer empty and unstable. And this is the reason why the false teacher looks for the ignorant. The uninformed. The immature. As a matter of fact, the rest of Peter's epistle is going to be devoted to solving this problem. What do I have to do in order to not become a victim of the false teacher? What he's going to do is he's going to remind you about what it means to know the word of God, know the son of God, embrace all of those things that are necessary for biblical fellowship and discipleship and relationship. As a matter of fact, when we come to the end of the chapter and the beginning of the next chapter, the rest of the epistle is going to be devoted in order to make you aware and able to stand against the false teacher and the false teaching. Beware the false teacher who comes with a false gospel and false power. Be on guard against men who do not fear the Lord. Be on guard against people who don't respect the Bible. Be on guard against people who lead other people astray for personal or financial gain. Heads up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you and we praise you. Lord, these are hard words and difficult words. These words of warning are supposed to save lives. Lord, we don't want a catastrophe to take place in our church and in our family. Lord, we pray that we would be wise men and women. Lord, we pray that we would have a healthy fear of God and a healthy regard for righteousness. Lord, we pray that we would never confuse liberty and freedom as liberty and freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whomever we want in order to satisfy ourselves. Lord, we pray. That we would hear the promises of God and embrace them. That we would hear the warnings and learn from them and grow from them and be instructed by them. Lord, I pray for that person who finds himself or herself wandering far away of indulging themselves instead of satisfying the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would turn us around and set our feet on a rock and place us in a circumstance where we could love you and honor you and follow you and believe you. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.